Good evening again to each one, and how blessed we are to be able to assemble in the quietness and the solitude of this hour and give our attention and thoughts to some of the teachings found yet again from the blessed pages of the Word of God. As was mentioned earlier in the announcements, as well as even our thoughts and that we expressed in prayer, the thankfulness that we have in our hearts for the Word of God, every book of it, every verse of it, every one of the presentations of its chapters, set forth by the Holy Spirit and intended for your and my benefit as we not only learn and appreciate it, but apply its teachings to our lives. This evening, as you may have noted in the bulletin earlier today, or at least on the wall to my left even at this moment, I would invite us to begin a series of studies this evening on one of the minor prophets found in the Old Testament, the book of Zephaniah. In fact, as we come to that book, we shall discover that just as is true of all the other books in the Bible, even though they may well be in the Old Testament at times, the teachings nonetheless are inspired. The teachings are certainly not in any sense to be neglected, but yet really do have messages of meaning that are somewhat profound and deep, even for today, for your life and for mine. The book of Zephaniah is the 36th book in the Old Testament. As such, it comes not far from the end of that Old Testament section of Scripture. And in this, we immediately are confronted with one of the descriptions of many of these books. The last 17 books of the Old Testament are described as books of prophecy, commencing with that first book, the book of Isaiah, and ending all the way at Malachi. But we do discover that the first five of them are often termed the major prophets, and the last twelve are termed the minor prophets, and that name seems to suggest that maybe the last twelve are lesser important. Maybe they're less significant. Maybe, in essence, they are less to a degree of being inspired of God. But nothing could be further from the truth than that. Those last twelve books are just as inspired as the first five. In fact, just as inspired as the previous books in the Old Testament. Those messages are meaningful, profound. And not only that, they were intended for the people of that day to address the problems that they faced. And as such, they often are very helpful as you and I address the problems that we face as well. And so it is that we arrive at the book of Zephaniah. And over the next few weeks at least, might we turn our attention to this book of the Old Testament, seeking to appreciate the time frame in which it was written, and seeking to not only appreciate that day and time, but to seek to make use of those lessons even for us today. As you can see near the top of that slide, you'll notice that the 53 verses that comprise this book certainly make it a very brief book. It's possible to read the entirety of Zephaniah in just a few minutes. And yet I would hope that probably three lessons total in our series and as we give thought to its teachings, chapter 1 will be our thrust and our focus for tonight. Maybe one last thing in this opening slide shall, shall then draw to its conclusion. The New Testament on a number of occasions draws our attention back to the days of the Old Testament. Not to set before us that law as if we are under it today, but rather to show forth the greatness of what that law foretold and predicted and isn't it true in 2 Peter 3 verse 2 that there a New Testament writer rather very profoundly said that you might know the words spoken before by the holy prophets and that not only knowing them you might appreciate the commandments of us the apostles. 
Peter thus learned and stated to those people of that day that what those Old Testament prophets wrote are things that are still meaningful, things that lessons are to be found in it. Chapter number 1 of the book of Zephaniah, as you can well tell, is a, book, is a chapter of some 18 verses. And here is it's what it seems to me a reasonable way to begin, to think a bit about the setting of the book. To whom was the book written? What were the circumstances that determined its writing? What were the major problems being addressed in it? And what was the major benefit hopeful that would be drawn by it if they were to give heed to the teachings of this book? The Old Testament presents to us in no uncertain terms that quite often after the division of the kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 12, we come face to face with the kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The book of Zephaniah was written to Judah, that southern kingdom. However, the instances surrounding its writing bring us perhaps to this statement that can be very helpful to us. Many of those kings that reigned over Judah were rather evil. Many of them made choices of iniquity and sin. Many of them, in fact, drove the people and led them in ways that were very far removed from the pure worship and service to God. In fact, one of the kings that we come to really is at least one of the bright spots among the Old Testament kings. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah labored quite some time prior to the writing of Zephaniah, but at least he directed the people in the proper direction in worship more often than not. Sad to say, after the 29 years of Hezekiah's reign, we encounter the two worst kings apparently that Judah ever had. One of them was the very son of, Man of Hezekiah. His name was Manasseh. The other was Manasseh's son, and these two together led the people for 57 long, sinful, idolatrous, terrible years in the sense that they directed the people away from God, they directed their attention to idols, and not only that, often the land suffered immensely because of it. During the course of the reign of these two, conditions became very bad. Conditions both economically, militarily, and otherwise became deplorable. Maybe there's a lesson in that for the United States of America today. That if we drift far from the teaching of the greatness of the Word of God and we allow other matters to cement within our minds, then as a nation we too shall suffer the onslaught of distance from God. And for all those reasons, we too will suffer mightily. For this reason, we do notice that in this day and time, it would appear that during the latter reign of Ammon, the latter era of this time that the book of Zephaniah was written. It was written to address a people who had drifted far from God, written to address a people who ought to have known better, written to a people who, at least in former days, should have been aware of what the God of heaven had taught, but in so doing they were headed down the precipice of captivity. Zephaniah's message was a difficult one. It was intended to hearken their mind back to where it ought to have been, to urge within them a sense of repentance, and in so doing, to hopefully, before it became too late, to draw them back to the God who loved them. It is with all that in mind that some of these thoughts ring greatly in our ears. I would point out that 
Thankfully, not too long after the days of Zephaniah, there was another good king. We're well familiar with him, and I think it was mentioned even about him in our Bible study class this morning. The young boy, Josiah, ascended the throne. He had a mind and an ear to turn the people back toward God as he learned more about the teaching of God. He was a good king. Shortly, of course, after Zephaniah's work, thankfully the people did at least have the good king Josiah to assist them. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the central theme of this whole book is the five words, the day of the Lord. That's the whole focus of the book of Zephaniah. Time and again he hearkens the people to appreciate that theme. Time and again he sets before them the reality of the day of the Lord. What will it mean? What will transpire? What will happen? And what needs to be done to be ready? The day of the Lord. In fact, of all the Old Testament prophets, none of them center one's thinking on the day of the Lord better than the prophet Zephaniah. And none of them labor with such extensiveness to call the people to that reality than then did he. The book of Zephaniah apparently was written between 630 and 625 B.C. And if you'll pause to think with me a moment, that means given the captivity to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon that was soon coming, the book of Zephaniah foreshadowed that event really by less than 30 years. The first deportation into Babylon occurred in 605 B.C., a short 25 years after the days of Zephaniah. Zephaniah tried hard to urge them not to neglect God, not to ignore His teaching, but to turn their life to where it ought to have been. As we can see, often His teaching fell on deaf ears. Often the people were unwilling to bend their stubborn will. They were too set in their ways and were unwilling to change. Often when one finds oneself in sin, being unwilling to change is, of course, the central feature in an eternity in hell. They needed to change. Let us listen then over the next few weeks to what Zephaniah had to say to them. And tonight we shall begin in chapter 1. The very bottom of that slide brings us one final thought. The misconception that they had about the day of the Lord was this. The people of Judah were just certain that the day of the Lord was going to be a day of victory, a day of celebration, a day of jubilation, a day of joy, a day of marvelous excitement. It was Zephaniah's challenge and charge to instill within their mind the fact it will not be that kind of day unless you're ready for it. Otherwise, it will be a day of terribleness, a day of gloominess, a day of darkness, a day of wrath and a day of great trouble. All of that will come before us in the opening chapter of Zephaniah. It is with that in mind that I would invite you to notice that the chapter begins, chapter number 1, almost immediately. Zephaniah wastes no time. Verse number 2 says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. Almost with immediacy. The prophet calls their attention and observes this, I, God says, will consume all things from off the land. Immediately, he leads them into an appreciation that this vision that they had had, this perception that they had had about the easiness with which things of God would be done and we and all are well with Him, 
And God immediately says, you have misunderstood. I'm going to consume all things off the land. Verse 2 goes on to say in verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. And immediately reference was made. There was an element of destruction, but we might well appreciate, he says, with the wicked. This message was intended to inspire within them a thought of what was in store for the wicked. Now clearly that meant that all of those that would not obey the Lord and would not find themselves favorable with Him would suffer along with those wicked. You'll notice in verse number 4, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Immediately there was an initial statement that these nations and the others that were going to feel the wrath of the God of heaven. Did you note with me there that even the prophet speaking for God said, even Judah and Jerusalem are going to suffer. Here were God's own people who should in fact have been far different in terms of their ease with Him, their favor with Him. And yet here was God's wrath going to be poured even on His own people. Doesn't that remind us in powerful fashion about 1 Peter 4, verse 17 and 18? If judgment first begin at the household of God, what about those who are outside that? The church should, of course, be powerfully always in the confines of the safety net of the wonder of God. But we must always remember we too will be judged. And all of us, if we are not prepared and ready... Just like Jude and Jerusalem felt the wrath of God, so too shall we. You'll notice in verse 4 it goes on to say, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the name of the Kimmerims with the priests, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. We immediately notice one of the major problems that God's people faced. Three times in that set of verses, you'll notice he makes note of this. The Baal from his place, the Kimmerims with the priests that swear by Malcolm. Malcolm was the chief goddess of the Ammonites. And here God's people had fallen into idolatry, worshiping this chief goddess of the Ammonites. The Kimmerims were idolatrous priests that were well known for their activity in ancient Israel and Judah. God says, my people have stooped to the point. They have strayed from their faithfulness. They have strayed from the proper pathway of righteousness with me and begun to worship just like the idolatrous nations round about them. For that reason, I will pour my wrath upon them and the day of the Lord will not be what they're expecting. It shall be a day of punishment, a day of wrath, a day of great vengeance. As you can see, as verse number 5 makes mention, God's people were worshiping the host of heaven upon the housetops. Almost unthinkable, isn't it? They who were blessed with the oracles of God, Romans 3 verse 2. They, according to Romans 9 verses 6 and 7, that were the very chosen ones, the inheritors of the great character of what God had delivered. They were worshiping on the housetops to all the goddesses and gods of the heavens. Somewhat reminiscent of Acts 17, isn't it? When Paul's heart was stirred within him, Acts 17, 16, 
as he came into Athens and found them worshiping all sorts and kinds of gods. Paul said, the one God that you call the one that's the unknown God, let me tell you about him. Zephaniah in many ways tries to do the same. In verses 6 and 7, we notice another powerful truth set forth by the prophet of old. He says, And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Interesting, isn't it? Here among those that were to feel the wrath of God and the great vengeance on that day of the Lord. Mention is made in verse number 6, Them that are turned back. Here were those who at one time were known for their faithfulness. Here are those who at one time were appreciated for their direction and their determination to serve the Lord, but now they've turned back. God says, My wrath will be poured on them. He goes on to say, Those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of Him. Maybe it could have been argued, But God, because they have never known you, maybe you ought to cut them some slack. And maybe you should in fact pour your mercy upon them. God said, in essence, they've had their opportunity. My goodness and my graciousness has been poured upon them, and my wrath shall now be felt by them. Isn't that a way to help us appreciate even today? Those who once were faithful servants of the Lord, but who have turned back, who have turned aside, who have gone their own way, if they do not repent, they are lost. They are separated from the God who loved them and the blood that was shed for them. And by the same token, those who have never responded to the truth. Maybe they're on a distant, faraway, deserted island, at least for the most part. That's no excuse. Christ's blood has been shed for them. The gospel has been intended for them. No wonder Jesus commissioned us with power and majesty to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. If they are saved in their current state, would it not be better for us to never preach to them? For if we preach to them and they do not respond, we know they're lost. You'll notice here that same message is found in Zephaniah 1, verses 6 and 7. The urgency that went along with their needfulness to hear what God commanded and that they might be brought their stubborn will to respond to it. Zephaniah, you see, has many th things that seemingly remind us of parallels in the New Testament. But that's true of all the prophets of the Old Testament, isn't it? As you can see near the bottom of this same slide, this day of the Lord, to which the people were looking with such excitement, Zephaniah's charge was to remind them that that day was going to be characterized like this. Verse number 7. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, He hath bid His guests. Here this day of the Lord is described, you see, as if God had made ready a feast, a sacrifice, and all the guests had been invited. Again, it was a day, though, in which rather than coming to enjoy a time of great celebration, it was a day in which those that had been bidden would feel the urgency of His wrath because of their disobedience. Will it not be so at the, also at the day of judgment? More of which we shall have to say later in the lesson this evening. 
perhaps finally on that opening thought in verse number 10, we notice that this statement is herein made. Again, God through Zephaniah speaking. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Rather than this day of tremendous celebration and singing in joy, God says it'll be a day of howling, a day of crying, a day of great sadness. I suppose by this point in Zephaniah's prophecy, many things were capturing their attention, many things that were leading them to see that all was not the way they were expecting. You'll notice beyond that in verses 11 and 12, Howl, ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. All of that merely whets their appetite because the last seven verses of chapter number 1 continue this description and I would invite you to listen as I read from verses 12 to 18. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Therefore their goods are become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They, all, they shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly." Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord." And their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. Neither, should, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of jealousy. For He shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. The harshness is not easy to bypass, is it? The message of Zephaniah is plain, straightforward and very easily understood. It is for all those reasons that you'll appreciate this day is described, this day of the Lord, as a day of wasteness, darkness, wrath, gloominess, a day in which the wrath of God shall be felt exactly, a day in which the terror, if you please, of the Lord will be easily appreciated by all of those who would be the recipients of it. You'll notice one last thought. Many things perhaps might be considered by the people of that day as being potential salvation matters. What can save us from this, Zephaniah? Verse 18 is clear in saying it won't be your silver or your gold. Verse 12 was clear in saying it won't be your occupations and it won't be the other matters that, you, that consume your life day by day. It is for all those reasons then that perhaps some lessons some interesting matters that might be of assistance to us about the day of the Lord mentioned here and its parallel as it's found within the pages of the New Testament. Consider these thoughts with me. 
the way in which the New Testament uses this phrase, day of the Lord, is so easily understood from verses like this one. In 2 Peter 3 verse 10, the inspired writer used this language, so full of message, so full of vividness. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And there this day of the Lord is mentioned, a day of destruction, a day in which the heavens will be consumed, and the earth also will be burned up completely and totally. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 says that it will be the occasion on which our Savior will return. It will be like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, you see, has an interesting parallel then from the New Testament to its presentation in Zephaniah. Let's in fact build on that foundation in the following way. In Zephaniah, that day of the Lord was the day of God's destruction of His people at the hands of Babylon. God was going to raise up Babylon to punish His own wicked people. That's what He said in verses 16 and 17, isn't it? Because of their sin, this is happening. It hasn't happened because I just felt like it. It hasn't happened because of anything otherwise other than their sin has prompted it. God is always of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13 The Lord is in His holy temple and all the earth keeps silence before Him. Habakkuk 2 verse 20 the sinfulness then of Judah is what prompted their destruction at the hands of an angry God. As you and I think about the day of judgment, will it not in many ways be the same? We find the New Testament describing for us that there's coming that occasion on which all shall stand before God in judgment. And these words I've listed here are certainly appropriate. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, read it like this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Perhaps we can even appreciate the thrust of Matthew 25, beginning in verse number 31. It was on that occasion, of course, that Jesus, in description of this judgment, painted this graphic picture. Every nation shall be gathered there, verse 32. And the Lord shall proceed to appreciate the division. Those on the right will be addressed and they shall be complimented, commended highly. And we well remember some of the things they had done. I was in prison. You came to me. I was sick. You visited me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. All of those things the Lord said... You have taken care of. And they, with perhaps a bit of confusion, said, Lord, when saw we thee in any of these ways? They were quick to reply as they appreciated what Jesus next said. Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. However, the Lord then addressed those on his left. Here it's just the opposite. They too had gathered at this occasion of judgment, but one by one they had not done those things that had been testified. They too were seemingly confused. When saw we thee in any of these circumstances? Jesus was quick to say, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye did it not to me. Depart from the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. 
Here were those, perhaps they were ready, thinking that all would be well on the day of judgment. We are ready for this occasion, a day of celebration, a day of joy, just like it had been intended in Zephaniah's day. But they're going to hear him say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Can you imagine hearing him say that on that day, I never knew you, knowing that all hope is lost, no more opportunities. Everything you'd ever at least minimally hoped for shall never be. Hell awaits. A place prepared for the devil and his angels. A frightening exposition if there ever is one in the New Testament. And yet, we notice it has at least a way parallel in the Old Testament. Sadly, the people of Zephaniah's day did not learn their lesson. The judgment at the hands of Babylon was not averted. It came in 25 years. One by one, they were hauled off to Babylon. One by one, they suffered 70 years in a land not their own. One by one, they found themselves suffering, beleaguered, cast aside, often mistreated, sometimes castrated. All of that happened because they sinned against God. Zephaniah was sent to urge them to think carefully to think properly, and sadly, so many never did. Maybe God is giving us a wake-up call in our nation today. A wake-up call calling us back to the Scriptures. Oh, how we should appreciate there is no other thoroughfare of deliverance than the Holy Word of God. Psalm 98.2 still tells us only in the Word is deliverance to be found. As you'll notice in the words of Zephaniah, we do see that there was a certainty in regard to that judgment if they didn't appreciate anything else. God said, I will come, verse 17. The day of judgment, of course, is something that's certain for all of us as well. There is no possibility of avoiding it, no possibility of sidestepping it. I realize that our land, by and large, looks dimly upon a day of judgment. So many think that you and I are really rather insane for thinking there's a day of judgment. Live it up day by day. The land is plentiful. We have lots of money and possessions. Surely you don't really believe. But we do believe. In fact, we're certain of it. Because the God of heaven has testified it over and over again in the New Testament. So many choose to live as if there's no judgment, but they'll have to pay the piper someday. And may we be quick to say, in the words of Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, listen to how Paul so thoroughly, so powerfully, so directly addressed this very matter, even in the days of the long ago. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead. That day is absolutely certain, just as certain as was the resurrection of Christ. For those reasons, this opening chapter in Zephaniah has prompted us perhaps to another lesson. Sin in the life of these people, the people of ancient Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the people who you might have thought would have been spared, but yet they too were judged and their sins were punished. The language of verse number 17 is again so critical, isn't it? 
because they have sinned against the Lord. Why was Jerusalem taken captive? Why was Judah basically destroyed? Zephaniah 1.17 gives us the answer, because they sinned against the Lord. Any people shall only prosper so long as they serve the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26.5 Any people will only remain strong and mighty so long as they serve the Lord. And when they cease to serve the Lord, they will cease to be strong. We see in Zephaniah that lesson is highlighted in the days of this punishment. Verses 15 to 17, this day of the Lord about which they were so excited. They thought it would be a day when their enemies would be defeated. They never thought it'd be them. And yet God says, it'll be a day of gloominess for you. A day of destruction for you. Because you've worshipped these gods on the housetops. You've turned your back upon me. You have, you have sought your spiritual lovers in the fields of the day. That's the way Jeremiah described them, wasn't it? Jeremiah followed Zephaniah by, just by only a very few years. And in Jeremiah chapters 4 and 5, he painted these people as going out into their fields looking for their spiritual idolatrous lovers. You haven't been faithful to the God, your husband, that loved you. You've committed spiritual adultery against all these others. And now, punishment at the hands of Babylon is coming your way. Amazing, isn't it, that as we appreciate the punishment due unto sin, it is still true, though, isn't it, that the wages of sin is death. Paul so powerfully and eloquently set that forth in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. James, however, joins in that discussion as well. In James 1, beginning in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's what sin will do. The people here, sadly, didn't learn that lesson nearly as quickly as one might have hoped. It took a time in captivity and only then. Did a remnant of them learn their lesson and 70 years later came out to finally be at least at first, the kind of people they ought to have been. In Second Peter chapter two, chapters two and three, we especially see this again as that sin and the life thereof is described. Maybe one set of final thoughts challenges you and me as well to understand how the punishment goes with that sin. We've time and again been striving to draw parallels from Zephaniah to our day. But it seems so clear to appreciate that that day of judgment still awaits in punishment upon those that are in, encompassed in sin. That day awaits. Many of our day, and how often do we hear it? They paint this day of judgment as a day of happiness. Country songs pouring out of Nashville describe this as a happy day when the vast majority are going to find themselves on the regretful end of a God filled with wrath that day. You see, the day of judgment isn't just some happy time. We live here for 80 or 90 years. We leave here and go to heaven. That only awaits for those who've lived here with preparedness in their heart and determination in their spirit and a devotion to the things of God in their mind. It's not just an automatic thing to show up at judgment, is it? 
but yet our world pictures it that way. And maybe you and I, if we aren't careful, we'll start thinking of it that way ourselves. Our youngsters at school are faced with time and again friends that say, but aren't we all going there? No, we're not. Jesus said, few there be that find it, Matthew 7, 14. The Lord Himself painted this picture of the fewness, descriptive of those in Revelation 7, verses 14 and following. The amazing thing is, Ephaniah said in a parallel way many of the same things centuries earlier. You'll notice perhaps finally in terms of that lesson, what a teaching is the Bible to remind us. Why is it that this was so vital for them? Of course, it is this. Our God is a consuming fire, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31, Hebrews 12.29. Maybe that brings us to the closing lesson and the final one for tonight, all drawn from the opening chapter of this book of Zephaniah. The people of Zephaniah's day apparently were sure many things could come to their rescue, many things could come to their aid, many things could assist them in being delivered. Many of their failures might be noted like this. In verse number 12, they said, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. They really thought God was unaware of what they were doing. They really thought He did not see them. How short-sighted they were. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, reads Proverbs 15.3. Neither, shall we read in Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You'll notice in their thinking God didn't see them. Look at what that prompted them to think. They thought that things like their occupation could save them. Look again, though, if you would, at verses 8, 9, and 10. God said in verse 8, I will punish the princes. Even those of high estate will not be exempt from my judgment. Verse number 9, those that were servants. From the highest to the very lowest, none are going to be exempt from God's judgment. In verse number 10, even those that were the common workers of the day, it mattered not whether one was well-to-do or poor. It mattered not whether one was uneducated or educated. God's judgment would be poured on every one of them. You'll also notice in verse number 18, they thought their gold and their silver could rescue them that maybe that would be the means whereby they could purchase salvation from another nation. And we do learn in Jeremiah 43, they tried it. They thought they could buy Egypt, solicit their help, and get them to come and save them. It didn't happen. Babylon conquered Egypt, you see. Isn't it interesting? The people thought they had a plan A, that they could escape the wrath and judgment of God. We can buy help from Egypt. But yet, Babylon conquered Egypt. So here, one more time, the papal faced Nebuchadnezzar. There was no escaping the wrath and the judgment of the angriness of God. It knew such that the day of judgment, of course, will also be the same. How many perhaps are of the opinion that my riches will somehow buy me a little more favor on judgment? Maybe my kindness, maybe my honesty, maybe my popularity... Maybe the other good deeds I've rendered will buy me a little benefit from God.
it'll not be so. Romans 2, verses 3 and following describe for us that God will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for honor and immortality and glory, eternal life. Those are the ones that will receive eternal life. But the next verse goes on then to say, those in terms of eternal damnation, those who have sought immorality, those who proceeded in disobedience, those who proceeded apart from God. That lesson etched so strongly in Zephaniah chapter 1 only leads us to wonder what shall the remaining lessons in chapters 2 and 3 bring. We'll look at those next time. As we close this lesson this evening, I would ask you to notice as we close this lesson, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 22, and 23, the Lord Himself speaking said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They in Zephaniah's day were under the delusion that they were okay. We are doing the things of God. But Zephaniah was telling them forthrightly that that's not so. On the day of judgment, Jesus said, Many are going to be under the impression that all is well. We have preached in your name. We've cast out devils in your name. We've done many wonderful works in your name. Interestingly enough, though, the Lord in response says, Though you thought you knew me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. May you and I in wisdom strive to let Zephaniah 1 be a strong set of lessons pointing us to the coming day of the Lord, that day of eternal judgment. And that you and I may in wisdom listen with such earnestness and devotion and so conduct our life that all shall be well with our soul that day. And we'll be able to hear Him say, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 7, or rather Matthew 25, verses 23 and 25. Tonight, as we each analyze our own selves, where do you and I stand before the God of heaven? Are the words of Zephaniah 1 penetrating into your heart and mine tonight? If so, may we allow those lessons to prompt us to be ever more faithful, ever more excited about the work of God, and ever more eager to allow that Word to dwell within us and to lead us in the sweetness of marvelous obedience. But if tonight things are not well with you, the day of the Lord for you at this moment is not a good one and you know it. You know that it will be a day of wrath given the current state of your soul. You know that it will be a day of difficulty and hardship. You can make that change tonight. There's still breath within your lungs and there's still the opportunity in your mind. And the gospel call of invitation is extended. If we could be of assistance to you, either as an alien sinner, one who's never yet rendered initial obedience to the gospel, why not come this very night? I know it can be a moment of nervousness, but there's a crowd of people here that would be happy to rejoice with you over your coming into the kingdom, being added to it by Jesus Himself, Acts 2.47. If we could be of assistance to you tonight in that way, why not let us do so? You need to believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could be of assistance, let us know, please. 
If you have rendered initial obedience to Him, but you no longer are faithful, come back tonight to your first love. Recognize that just as Zephaniah said, those who once were faithful have turned aside. They too will feel His wrath. That same message needs to be heard by you, my friend. Why not come back to your faithfulness this very evening? And if we could pray with you and for you, let us do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.